in a world where the capitalist mode of production has overseen the dissolution of many forms of traditional familial bonds. One bear and one lady are dissolving the veil that covers their family tree and your heart. It's Snackers and the Vag. Before my eyes and your ears is a vision and a sound of optimistic will. A voice to elevate your ear holes with its wisdom. Think of him as the cotton bud of intellectualism. He is a notable professor of history. He is a recipient of the University of Melbourne's medal for his thesis and is arguably the best domestic cultivator of tomatoes on the southern continent. Dr G.E. Foley is here again for you and for me and for the world to analyse the most pressing issues in an international era of decline. It is the end times. Do you agree, sir? Pressing issues or depressing issues, folks? It is. uh, We are on the verge of the end of the world and appropriately enough we're in Melbourne for the end of the world. Why is Melbourne an appropriate situation for that? On the beach. Oh yes. the. uh, the Sorry folks, these cultural references clearly going back. It's showing that I'm someone who grew up in John Howard's ideal Australia in the 1950s. Yes and, and when was a better time than under Menzies and the year that Communism was nearly actually made illegal. So from what I understand, On the Beach, based on a novel by Neville Shute, it's a nuclear holocaust, you know, dystopian fiction. Uh, For my generation, I'm just a little bit younger than you, it was a film called I think The Day After Tomorrow. Absolutely, as a tween, as a young teenager, gave me the horrors, which it was designed to do, like really fucking traumatised kids about how dreadful those Russians would be. I mean, you know, arguably after the Cuban Missile Crisis and mutually assured destruction, the chances of nuclear devastation were very, very slim. But that's not what we were fed. That's not what you were fed. Was On the Beach a good novel and or film? I can't remember. It's so far, far long back in my memory banks. I'm, uh, you know, as you get older, your memory fades. I can only sort of um, think back 50 years these days. Oh, is that all? Well, I mean, that's primarily because uh, as a professor of history, the period of history that I'm particularly obsessed by and focus on is the period between about 19... 65 and uh, 1975. So I sort of tend to live in that um, limited space in my memory banks as they fade as one gets older. I guess, yeah, it reminds me of uh, the old practice on PCs of optimising the hard drive, you know, (laughs) defragging it. Unfortunately, I have the uh, opposite problem. I remember ridiculous things that are of no use, no value Uh, to anybody except maybe if I went to a really shitty pub trivia night. Uh, So at least you're remembering the important things. Well, um, important to me, but, you know, one of the lucky things about being a historian, I mean, all all a historian is, is a glorified storyteller. So 
as a, a storyteller, you can sort of embellish and make little bits up and yeah. help them, you know, you can mould and shape history into any form you want and it has authority because I'm a historian, folks, and you're not. <laughs> um, speaking of the useless information that I keep in my head, whereas you defrag, you optimise and keep useful information in your head, recently it was what is now called International Women's Day. For me, a complete farce and an excuse for well-to-do ladies to go to posh brunches funded by finance companies, cheer themselves with a glass of suave and say, isn't it wonderful that there's women in leadership? I'm sure that you know the origins of International Women's Day, which well, is, of course, the, I, the Comintern well, and Socialist it's, Union. Its its predecessor was National Aborigines Day and National Aborigines Week, which served exactly the same purpose, a token gesture, um, you know, a moment. we I used to call it Buy a Boonga Beer Week. You did, and you've still got the pamphlets. That's right. You're and, an archivist by and nature. It's, it's essentially coming from the same place. It's an opportunity for a few uh, posh people to get together and click some champagne yeah. glasses and indulge in a few balls and things and and then they can forget about forget about everybody for the rest of the year in the case of women international women's day forget about you know women and domestic violence and all those issues for women for the rest of the year and forget about aboriginal people for the rest of the year well you know i mean there are a very small number of women who are celebrated and included and revered and that image of the, the successful woman is one to which we are supposed to aspire. The same thing happens on NAIDOC week, which is the extension of the National uh, Aboriginal and Islander Day of Commemoration. You have a different name for it. But was there ever, what, does the day itself refer to a particular historic event that is of any value? Um, not particularly from my memory, but, I mean, you know, it, it emerged from um, around the Whitlam uh, government era and it, you know, it was born of good intentions but it was it was an idea that emerged out of the the then rapidly emerging Aboriginal middle class. It wasn't something that blokes in tin shacks in on the edge of Burke were particularly concerned with, but it was an opportunity for non-Indigenous Australians to sort of ease their conscience a little bit. And that was the cynical interpretation that people like me back then uh, placed upon it. And I don't think we were all that wrong. Well, you fucking weren't. Now, I mean, this is uh, a lot of your work, um, particularly the shorter works in, in journals and what have you, where you talk about the service that these sorts of events have to uh, white mythology. You wrote a very powerful piece Please forgive me, I can't remember which journal it was in, I can't remember where I'll find it, but it was about, and it was very prescient. Probably on my website. You're writing about Sorry Day in 2008, right, and you're very explicitly talking about how this serves to mythologise the goodness of the white unconscious. A lot of people weren't very happy with you, including a lot of black people, what what is that uh, what is that piece called? It's very well written. Um, 
I can't remember, but it's about... Oh, I simply pointed out that this was not an apology to the Aboriginal people, which it has been perpetually portrayed as ever since. Mm. It was, in fact, a an apology to a small portion of the Aboriginal communities around Australia, the small portion who were uh, taken and the families who were affected. Now, there a lot of families were affected, but let's not pretend that the Prime Minister made an apology to all Aboriginal people. What about the people who weren't taken away? What about the ones who had to live through the old apartheid system and all of the brutality and the inhumanity of that. There's been no apology to them. There's been no large um, amounts of funds set up, you know, to compensate them. And indeed, what about an apology to the people who were very much suffering at the very time, absolute apartheid military aided outsourced apartheid during the so-called intervention in 2008 when the fucking apology was made. But, of course, you know, Kev wanted it to be his legacy. Just back to the women thing for a minute, if you don't mind. That's fine. Uh, just, you know, by way of analogy, I'm not saying that our experiences are identical or, or anything like that. Like, I am not going to deny that there's a, you know, perhaps a commonality of experience that most women, whether trans or cis, experience, right? And as you've told me before, I mean, there's a certain, you know, because you are culturally defined by the fiction of race, there's a certain commonality that you'll even have with, say, Obama. Not a lot, but you know, you you have argued this with me before, right? And and this is one of the things that we maybe call white privilege or male privilege. So there is a certain commonality of experience. But what really shits me with days like, and for me particularly, it's International Women's Day, because there's nothing fucking left. And unlike NAIDOC, March the 8th is actually a very special day. Uh, March the 8th, actually marks the official start of the Bolshevik Revolution. It was the day where the women of Petrograd, um, formerly St Petersburg, soon to become Leningrad, blah, blah, blah. There was a bread strike. They went on strike. It's absolutely March the 8th. But, you know, there's a variety of different histories saying, oh, no, it started in 1857 in the United States. There's the difference, see. I mean, the date that you're talking about is clearly of consequence and significance, whereas the date of uh, NADOC, I'm not sure I could even tell you. In fact, I think it's four different dates in four different states. Yeah, like I'm not married to dates. So, like I'm... So, but that's that's one of the essential differences. I mean, I can see see your point in terms of the significance it has or it should, you know, that ought to be acknowledged. I'm not wed to dates. I'm not a change the date kind of person. I'm like a chuck out the whole fucking day kind of person. But there is a very kind of like direct genealogy of International Working Women's Day um, and, you know, the third international attempted to have it celebrated worldwide, the uh, Garment Ladies uh, Workers Union in, in the United States, and, of course, you know, the old Stalin because uh, it was celebrated or acknowledged um, until the end of the Soviet Union. It didn't become a thing in the West until the United Nations. And your Nations. point is? History is my point, until 1975. So, like, whether or not it's got, like, legit genealogy 
or what, what I see very much in your work. Uh, and the question is? The question is, well, it is a discussion. I like to think of us as mates. I mean, you know, I boast to people, I drop your name. I know you don't feel the same way, darling. Yes, but I listen to what you say. What I'm saying, and it's, you know, it's a complex point and I'm a chatty lady. What I'm saying is that it's not the first time in history, especially not the first time in the 20th century, where the seeds of revolt and genuine dissatisfaction and genuine solidarity are then co-opted. And I'm sure that you've felt this in a hundred different ways. It's also about the particular, in my case, history of feminism. And you know as well as I do that feminists in Australia do not have a particularly great history when it comes to Aboriginal people and Aboriginal women in particular, do they? We all remember the Racial Hygiene Association of New South Wales, now called the Family Planning Association. Yes, but at the same time, um, there have been uh, feminists in Australian history who who have behaved somewhat differently. Of in course. Fact, very honourably. The minority. Maybe so. It's still a minority, the other sort as well. I don't know whether you can extrapolate that much. It wasn't so much a question as a point about how the radical histories, people's histories get quashed. Yes, but I've already, I've already said that, you know, not only do I agree with you, um, I would argue that we in the Aboriginal movement in, in Australia experienced it even sooner, you know, because uh, International Women's Day hasn't been a thing as long as National Aboriginal Day has been, you know? (laughs) Yeah. As you saw from the pamphlets that I put out 40, 50 years ago. And they're they're hilarious. We were were challenging the, you know, what we were trying to do was expose the hypocrisy of the whole exercise. And yet, if anything, the, the only thing that's changed between now and 50 years ago is that the whole facade and charade has gotten worse as time's gone on, you know. Now they have big uh, multimedia presentations and and uh, light shows at the uh, MCG and... Uh, yeah, and your special, know, special days. The and, Indigenous uh, Week and the NRL and the AFL, you know. Yeah, and that... A lot of my brothers and sisters will be upset to hear me talking like that, but, I mean, you know, at the end of the day... It, it still remains tokenism. While, while ever the incarceration rates are what they are today and have been for the past 50 years, then nobody can argue that we have real social justice in Australia. And, you know, all that uh, National Aborigines Day is is divert attention from where the real problems are and where people don't want to look. So they look at National Aborigines Day and they all write nice things in the letters to the editor and each newspaper has a big fine editorial and, you know, nothing changes. And now I see... Life goes on and nothing changes. And now I see, because, I mean, you've probably heard of this thing called intersectionality. Heard of that? Intersectional feminism. for, For mine, it's a... Not even a theory. It doesn't pass as a theory, but a lot of people are into it, and a lot of like quite powerful, um, celebrated white feminists are are into it too. And it's like these days, you kind of 
when you're building your brand on social media, it's very good if you have an Aboriginal friend in Australia, like an Aboriginal woman friend, right? Because you say, it's very important to be inclusive and I acknowledge that I'm standing on Aboriginal land, et cetera, et cetera. And at the same time, that actually provides a service to their brand. And in one sense... Or better still, just go to Ancestry.com and become one of them. (laughs) You mean become Aboriginal? Become an Ancestry.com blackfellow, folks, you know. It's possible, it's been done, it's, con- you know, it's fairly fairly um, Can I- around these days. Oh, yeah, you're going to get impatient with me because that's our friendship, you know, like I exist to give you the shits. Yes, we, we've already I've- established that. So, you know, you've heard of this bloke, Stan Grant, right? I know Stan Grant. Yeah, Stan Grant. He's got a... They give him a show on the ABC where he talks about how China is evil incarnate every night, I think. Uh, Anyhow, Stan Grant, who fancies himself as a bit of an international relations expert and was until quite recently a member of the uh, ASPE think tank, that's the Australian Sinophobic Policy Institute. Oh, sorry, I mean the Australian Strategic Policy Institute, which is funded both by the Australian government and Lockheed Martin and General Atomics anyway. I'm sure that doesn't affect a thing. So I was reading, have you ever heard Stan talk about uh, the Black Grants? Now, I'm going to tread very carefully from here in... <laughs> no, I just want to tell you a story about my ancestors knowing Stan's ancestors. I recently just, you mentioned... Pray tell. You mentioned Ancestry.com. Like, I did not go on Ancestry.com, right? Pray, pray I, tell. I signed up. Um, as a member of the Church of Latter-day Saints, so I could get all the free Mormon information. Well, they've, they've got a better uh, oh, collection yeah. of genealogical data, yeah, haven't yeah, they? Yeah, I don't have a problem with being a Mormon. I'm a fucking Mormon, although they did get it because they christen everybody, right? They did get in a little bit of trouble a couple of years ago. I don't know if you remember this, when it was found that they uh, christened Anne Frank. <laughs> did you did you hear about that? No, but I I did live for 20 years in the same street as um, the Mormon church in um, West Coast Street in um, Northcote. They're, they're a bunch of fun, aren't they? Well, uh, that particular branch of the Mormon church I, I discovered over the years were, had a uh, clientele, is that the right word, or a congregation. Mm. <laughs> uh, primarily, that primarily consisted of... Um, Pacific Islanders, big uh, Tongans and Samoans, you know. Yeah, there was, a, I mean, which, there was a Which huge... is no, no surprise. But what surprised me was um, they used to clog up my street every Sunday and they had some sort of a concession with some car company that produced these tiny little white cars. And once every three months, a semi-trailer would stop in front of the Mormon church and unload uh, about ten little white cars and then all of these giant Pacific Island brothers <laughs> would cram un- into these tiny little cars and drive off. Yeah. And one more story about the Mormon church in Fairfield. This is skating on thin ice, folks, but God loves me. Um, oh, fuck them. They, don't, get, they a, don't go after us like the Scientologists. This is my last story about the Mormons in Fairfield. One night about uh, 20 years ago, there was a blackout in the entire suburb of Northcote. And I walked out the front of my house and everything was completely dark in every direction I could see. And I looked down the end of my street and there in the darkness was this great, dirty, shining white cross. 
And I thought, you shifting Mormons. These shifting Mormons had a generator in their basement, you know, so that when the entire suburb got blacked out, the only thing people could see was this giant white fluorescent cross, which I thought wasn't fair advertising, you know. I thought that 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 was pretty evil. That was pretty shifty. Mm. Very clever, but nevertheless shifty, folks. Mm. That's the last of my Mormon stories. Yeah, yeah. Like, look... Give them their due. They're not going to come after you. Well, they didn't come knocking on my door ever, That's to their credit. Yeah, I mean, you know, once you start talking... Unlike other particular, you know, congregations which shall remain nameless. Yeah, I mean, once you start talking about Zenu and, you know, all that other stuff from the uh, Church of Scientology, that's when you're in trouble. And and a, <laughs> and a, and a, very, and a very warm welcome to our many, many uh, Scientology listeners. Uh, um, I'd like to say that... I got nothing against Scientologists. Don't come after me, folks. Don't send the, don't send the, the little, oh, yeah. little secret agents yeah, against yeah, me. Yeah, 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 like, Look, you some know, of my best friends are Scientologists. That is let, absolutely, me, let me make one thing perfectly clear. That is absolutely clear. untrue. So <laughs> we're talking to Professor Gary Foley, who is a radical, radical meaning, going to the root, going to the foundation, continually investigating. And, and you've heard him do that already. Like, he questions shit and he questions me all the time and why I'm going on so much. So uh, can I just share a little personal story with you? Is that okay? Yes. Um, I've always been a bit repulsed by the whole idea of Ancestry.com, <laughs> particularly when it is combined with, you know, human genome stuff. DNA. <laughs> you know, you can get like DNA tests you can have at home and they've yeah, got like that's, sort that's of. That's how they find the serial killer down the road who yeah. turns out to be your uncle or somebody. But there's a number of like, you know, very common genome sequences and it'll give you a fairly good idea about where your ancestors came from. Like, for example, uh, fucking what's her name? Elizabeth, I can't even remember, Warren, that prick. You know, presidential uh, mm -hmm. nominee, like she got a DNA test to prove that she had Cherokee blood. Yeah, it was yeah, just, yeah. I mean, come on, right? Yeah, yeah. Like your ancestry doesn't make you black or part of the indigeneity. Um, I recently, because, you know, look, just for reasons, became a Mormon so I could look at my family history because my... I need to explain why. Tell us what okay, the result so I was. Okay, was, so I was looking... Okay, and it's the centenary of my great-grandfather's death by suicide. He walked into Port Phillip Bay. And there's a fair bit of, like, suicide and depression on that side of the family. I thought, well, no one's visited his grave because he wasn't a popular bloke for 100 years. And in a couple of weeks, it's the 100th anniversary, I'm 53, he's 53, forever. And I thought, well, look, I'll go and clean it up and maybe plant a rose and say, you stupid fucker, oh, my God, that, that fucking archives you can get. Now, I, I, from the Victorian public records, this is relevant to you, I got a digital copy of the coronial report on his death and it's heartbreaking. I can't understand why you're a historian. Documents are fucking fascinating. I know exactly what you mean. I've got the uh, death certificate and the coronial inquest in my great-grandfather, you know, so I know exactly what you're talking about. So I went back thanks to the Mormons, in time and just, like, traced um, my great-great-great times three who was a convict on the Second Fleet, Irish guy, uh, called uh, Nicholas Delaney. And, you know, in white families in particular, um, there's this whole kind of like, oh, a jolly convict history and wasn't it fun and rum and everybody got better and, 
you know, I look at this thing and this guy is like Nicholas Delaney. Please don't email me if you're a descendant of Nicholas Delaney. I mean this in the nicest possible way. There's fucking tens of thousands of us. Talk to somebody else. Uh, Nicholas had like, you know, dickety million sons, the second of which uh, uh, was Thomas. So I was like, okay, so Thomas is my great, great. Where did he die? Um, He died in Australia's first psychiatric hospital. That's all the information I can find about him. I was going to ask you some hints because I've got to go to a Western Sydney reading room and request his records, his medical records, because, you know, they're very, very... How, how hard is some shit to get that shouldn't be hard to get, Gary, with, with historical documents? It seems insane. Have you tried the National Archives? Uh, yeah, <laughs> nothing doing. Um, they're held, they're, they're on paper um, and they're held in Western Sydney and that's it and you've got to make... So a, you've got to go through the state, is n- that right? Yeah. State I've, authorities. Yeah, I've just got to go to, I mean, some libraries I find really helpful, like State Library New South Wales, been very helpful. National Archives, not user-friendly. I've always found the National Archives to be brilliant, the staff there. Yeah, well, you know... You've got to develop a relationship. Yeah, you know how to use it too. I'm just an amateur. Um, uh, And And I'm also famous and you're not so. Otherwise they'd treat you like me. How very dare you. (laughs) How very dare you. Uh, Perhaps I'm known at the State (laughs) Library of... uh, Unfortunately, the National Archives, like, for all of this, oh, Australia. In fact, there's probably more of your stuff in the National Library than is mine, so what am I saying? Yeah, yeah. I'll just um, give this to you. You can maybe mention it later. Um, there is no more fucking funding for the National Archives. And Trove. That's right. At the National Library, like, you know, we've got Write these... letters, folks. You but know? we've got these old fucking cunts yes, yes, but... saying, don't. Yes, Don't yes. tear down the statues. Yes, Australia but, Day is important. But, you know, Where is our history? Where is our history? Some, you don't care about our history. Sometimes, sometimes these mugs in Canberra take notice of enough people kick up a big enough stink and something like the National Archives needs to be preserved. It needs, you know, needs money more than we... We need that more than we need fucking submarines and bases for them in Wollongong. I mean, you know, that's a bit oh, too look, close can, to Melbourne. As we, can a, all, we can always print more money. It, do, it, it doesn't matter if we're supposed to have this fucking national identity that I, I, I will argue we don't. We have a national identity based on not having an, a, a national yes, but identity. The only way, only way people can determine that one way or the other is through the records that are in the national archives, which are extraordinary facts. You mm. know, why do people sign up to that? Ancestry.com, half of that stuff's already there. Yeah, and um, I know they don't make it that accessible to the general public, but, you know, uh, I'll give you Gary's no, phone no, number. He'll tell you how to use right. it. Yes, yeah. I'll put my phone number out there. No, this is a state record. <laughs> this is um, like the, you know, the state. It, it used to be called the Tarbot uh, Creek Lunatic Asylum. I've already um, had recent experience trying to weave my way through the New South Wales state bureaucracy. Mm. I mean... A lot of Aboriginal people buried there in a mass grave as well. Um, All over the place, folks. Yeah. Uh, but on this Probably o- here. On Who this, knows? On, the, on this occasion, my white ancestor is buried with them. It's covered over by a car park just a couple of years ago um, at what became the Gladesville Hospital and is now, it's always a mental facility for, you know, 150 years. Um, 
I found out all of this thanks to the Mormons. And I'm like, oh, my God, like there's madness in my family. No wonder I'm so uh, crazy. So I read a, a little... different perspective on the same topic. No, can I, can I just finish this story about Stan Grant? No, you started that an hour ago. Oh, stop it and have some patience with me. You know I'm entertaining. Goodness gracious, folks. So, um, so I read about my great-great-grandfather. This is the great, uh, this is the grandfather of the man whose grave I'll soon uh, visit. And I find out that he is in this fucking hellhole. And then I find out that the guy, and then I was reminded of you because I find out that the guy that ran the hellhole at the time, there's all these buildings at Sydney University named after him, just reminded me of you. You're like, I'll take you. You've always said, I'll take you on a tour of Melbourne University and I'll, hey. I'll give you the names of of, you know, I'll tell you the fucking terrible yeah. histories. I mean, my God. Every sandstone uni in Australia has got the same problem. I know, it's amazing. And this this cruel guy who was like, you know, having conversations in the 19th century about whether or not tethering lunatics was a good idea. Mm. Um, there's, he's, there's still a prize for excellence in psychiatric studies given in his name. Anyhow, so very quickly, Thomas... Um, uh, along with 1,500 other people, some of whom are named and they're mostly presumed to be Aboriginal people, all chucked in this lunatic asylum. That was what it was called. Um, I looked up what I could, what few documents I could, and I gathered that um, he was doing it hard on the land and it kind of had what seemed to me to be a bit of a kind of like a surf feudal lord arrangement with something called uh, Moyle Farm, which is uh, up near uh, Oberon, you know, Oberon in New South Wales. Not particularly. It's near the Blue Mountains. Yes, uh, Jackie Katona uh, country. Okay, so this, this, this flash from Tipperary comes out to Australia as a free man, I believe, and uh, his name's John Grant. There's actually quite a lot of history about him because, you know, like to take a good photograph. You know the old Australian your flash. telling a story connecting your family with he Stan owned, Grant. He owned my poor great-great-grandfather, Thomas, who died in poverty in a fucking horrible hospital and in Stan Grant's memoir, which I'm sure you've read. No. It's called going. The Tears of Strangers, a memoir. He notes his descent from John Grant. And? Well, it's interesting. You know, I just thought it was a nice turnabout. No, no, it's brilliant. It's Keep a nice going. It's a nice, tur it's a nice turnabout for the books, isn't it? Absolutely. Like, you know, like an Aboriginal man has ancestors that oppressed my white ancestors. So I thought that that was nice for a bit of balance. I reckon There's a lot more to the story. I've I reckon that's a sensational it. story. We can, we you can, do know you're condescending. We can wake up on Monday and see it on the front page of the Daily Telegraph. No, I mean, but it is. I mean, when no, anyone, you've told me is. this before, right, because, like, the other side of my family have a fucking long-standing argument. Everybody's family histories, you go back three generations, four generations, and everything is much more complicated than most Australians understand, concede or even know, you yeah. know? I mean, the, the Robinson side of my family, That's right? That's a great story, you know? Yeah, but the Robinson side I'm of my... I'm glad you told it, not me. But the Robinson side of my family, oh, it's just, I mean, it's just what I found out, right? So the, the Robinson uh, side of my family ended up going to Mullumbimby, local plumber, blah, 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 right? 
they were my father and his 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 two brothers are very good friends of the Belliers when they were like five or Belairs. six. Belairs. Sorry. So so just tell me about the Belairs and your association with them. Um, Solly and Bob Belair were uh, members of the inner circle of the Black Power movement in in Redfern in the 1970s. Sol Belair, who was the younger of the two brothers, um, uh, went in 1970 to an international conference of the Congress of African Peoples that was held in Atlanta, Georgia. Oh wow! Um, along with um, imagine what that along been with like. um, uh, pa- a woman whose name at the time was Patsy Kruger, who's the mother of um, Kim Kruger, who works with me and at Victoria University these days. Uh, along with Bruce McGuinness, along with Jack Davis, a West the, Australian the, 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 playwright, the, the, the great Bruce McGuinness. Um, absolutely. So and, sort of your m- and, mentor. Well, in some let way. me finish. And along with, I mean, this was a this was a significant um, uh, visit uh, in Aboriginal political history of that era. Yeah, and that had come about when you know after Bruce McGuinness and uh, Bob Mazza, who later was in basically black with me, Bob Mazza was the um, chair of the Aboriginal Advancement League in Northcote at the time and they invited this otherwise obscure Caribbean academic called Professor Roosevelt Brown who gave this talk at the um, Aboriginal Advancement League in 1969 and the title of the talk was Black Power. And what he was talking about was uh, every colonised peoples on the planet striving towards economic and political independence, you know, and that's what he meant by black power. But the Australian media jumped on it, sensationalised it and uh, generated all these headlines and that's the first time black power was ever used as a term in the Australian political, you know, language landscape. And so, you know, Bob uh, Sol Belair was part of that visit. He became a member of the inner circle of the yeah. Redfern Black Power crew that set up all these Aboriginal community-controlled organisations. Bob. Um, yeah, Bob was the one Bob that was friends Bob, with my well, uncles Bob, and father. Bob, Bob took an interesting different path to Seoul. Bob actually um, joined the Australian Navy and he was in the Navy yeah. for years. And it wasn't until he f- came out of the Navy and become part of the Redfern community with all the rest of us that uh, he he personally experienced uh, police brutality and all sorts of stuff along with the rest of us and became part of our, our crew. And he married a, a, a non-Indigenous woman called uh, Kay. And Kay's still alive, right? Kay's still alive. She's still a close friend of mine in Sydney. Um, in fact, she's one of the few people still around who I can ring up and check with uh, things about, you know, back, you know, we have to compare our memories, see uh, how reliable otherwise our memories have gotten over the years. But uh, Kay's still a good friend of mine. Uh, Bob, uh, after getting out of the Navy and and, and, um, becoming partner with Kay, it was, both of them became very much, in fact, Kay was, I think, the only non-Indigenous person in the inner 
circle of the Black Power crew in Sydney mm. and um, they adopted a couple of uh, young uh well, a few Aboriginal uh, young kids who were homeless and sort of abandoned at the time, um, one of whom, um, young Carly, who I've known since he was a baby, um, he's currently, a, 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 well, he was, I hope he still is after COVID. He was a pilot with um, um, Virgin Airways, you know. Um, and so one of the reasons that, like, I know you well enough to know that you don't you know, I mean, Malcolm X was a huge influence on you uh, and, you know, renaming yourself X and all of that, like neither of I us. I never renamed myself X. No, 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 but you admired that discontinuation. Yes. It's like, fuck it, I'm starting with X, right? Um, I've been colonised, my history's been robbed, I'm starting a new one kind of thing, right? And while, you know, for a lot of sentimental reasons, for a lot of people, probably ourselves included because of, you know, familial love and shit like that and vanity, you know, you look back at your ancestry. But what's been really fascinating to me, like a person who's really kind of like avoided stories that just sounded like bullshit to me all my life um, what's been really interesting in uh, like looking at both sides of the family and the um, inevitable con- contact they had with Aboriginal people, um, it just like <sighs> you gave me a bit of advice because yes, but you gave me a bit of advice because because it was Bob Belier, right? It was Bob that was you know beloved, especially by my uncle Greg, right? And I didn't finish his story. He went on to become the first. Aboriginal or first Indigenous district court judge yeah, in Australia and ended up as one of the commissioners on the Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths in Custody. So he had a very distinguished yeah. um, legal career on top of everything else. But and for he anyone, always maintained those values and principles that he was on about when he was yeah. part of our uh, Black Power crew in the early 70s. And for anyone know? from Mullumbimby? you know, which was a really, really small town, um, uh, uh, to rise to those heights is quite extraordinary. Now, it's just well, interesting it's to the me. Same, it's the same with me. I mean, what the point you were going to make before about, um, you know, Bob and both Bob and Sol went on to become completely different people to, they, to what they may have seemed to be, even though they were still the same people. Um, they went on and did things so radically different to what people had become accustomed to and who grew up with them. The same happened mm. with me on the North Coast and in Tenterfield when I was a kid. Yeah. Um, I've still got friends from when I went to primary school, who, none of whom uh, have risen, none of whom we ever talked about any of that shit when we were going to school, but who remain friends of mine and who know me from then and relate to me as I was then. We, who is a person who I still am, you yeah. know? Surprise, and, surprise, you and know? And yet, yet the changes both myself and they have gone through since the days we knew each other, since the days we went to school with each other, um, we, we all went in radically different directions. Some people become rich, some people become, you know, uh, down and outs and junkies and died and, you know, people 
become middle class, some are still kicking on and surviving, uh, you know? It, it reminds me of something that your uh, friend and the guy who describes himself as the conservative member of Black Power, which is quite funny if you've seen his work, Richard Bell. First <laughs> time I interviewed him, um, he, he gave me a bit of shit, uh, actually. As Richard does. Yeah, I know. I immediately liked him. I, I don't know whether it's the masochist in me or what, but he was like, can I just have a fucking day off from being black, please? I was like, can you ask me about something else other than my black experience? Of course, I was working at the ABC, so it's basically compulsory saying, oh, you're black. How black are you? This is the ABC. We have a black person on blackity black. You know how it goes. Like you've got to make a big deal. Uh, And Richard has a way about him, as you know. Um, which these, is, these days I make a big deal about the host of, um, what is it, on Monday nights? What, Q&A or some shit? Oh, Q&A, that's right. <laughs> Isn't that some blonde bloke who does that? I don't mm. watch that show, it shits me. Um, I think it's a bloke called Stan. Oh, Stan. Stan Grant. <gasps> oh, that's right, Stan. Stan international relations oh, expert. And the man who's going to save Ukraine from the menace of Putin—that's Stan Grant. Uh, I, I, I don't know who you're talking about. I, I just know some young black fellow I used to know on ABC years ago. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. No. So just this thing about—it's interesting to hear you say about. So I'm not like being all like my family history or your family history or Stan's family history or whatever. Um, I mean, it's up to history to decide whether Stan Grant comes from a long line of liberal fuckwits. I don't know. But going back but, to but where just, you were talking about. But, but just before. this thing, it's, I mean, it's interesting that you say that actually that Bob uh, was like, rel- you know, relative to his bro, his brother, uh, the more kind of like uh, reformist, conservative, oh, respectable. I, I wouldn't call him... Conservative Bob uh, Bob was a good chameleon. I mean, you know, the reason I respected and and loved Bob till the day he died was that he'd always maintained his. Um, he had a certain mm. certain integrity and morality about him from the day I first met him. You know, and he was the older of the two brothers. He was Sol's uh, older brother, and. Um, I think because Sol was able to grow a better giant afro, which was the go back then. Oh, my um, God. I mean, they were so... And especially when Sol came back from America. They, I mean, they, you know. they, they were so fantastic and, and thank goodness they're <laughs> back. I mean, afros are brilliant. Well, absolutely. you're not going to get an argument for me except in the sense that I was never able to grow one because my no. hair was too you got, straight. You but, got, you know... Your hair's just straighter of than mine. Compensate. Well, I got... Hardly any nowadays, but no, no. Bob was. Um, I mean, it, and it's people like Bob who are the forgotten, um, amazing people from, you know, my days. Our little brief uh, moment in the historical sunshine or whatever, at the embassy. But you know, Bob was one of the staunch. Is like, it 50, what Robbie is talk it 50 these years? days Sorry. calls the staunch crew. While you mentioned the embassy, is it fifty years this year? Yep, it was set up uh, on the twenty sixth of January. 1972, that's 50 years ago. And the first time... And we're time going through a lot of anniversaries this year. Yeah, I, mean, I know. On, in July, 
Uh, in early, in mid-July is the first time the coppers smashed us. Then on the 23rd of July, they smashed us again in a big way, which is recorded in the film Ning La Na. And then on the 30th of July was the the final last stand of the Aboriginal Embassy and people want to hear about this. So I'm likely to do another podcast soon about this. Yeah, well, anything I can do to help you do your own podcast, I think, would be really good. And, you know, give me a give me an oi, Helen at badhostess.com or I think you can, like, WhatsApp me from a Facebook page or whatever. I'm pretty easy to find. If you want to give Gary uh, some good practical assistance so he can, you know, regularly podcast because stories are asked with him and they're important stories and they're absent. They're absolutely absent from our non-people's history of this continent and this dreadful nation state. Can I say state. one last thing before we go? Along the lines of what you were talking about before about your uh, connections with uh, the Belairs and Bob in particular, Yeah. Um, that really ultimately is the history of Australia. There are so many interwoven stories between all of our families and if people, you know, want to bother to go and research your own family and find out who your good uncle or auntie or cousin uh, was who was more progressive than maybe the rest, um, it's, the stories are out there and they're great stories, you know. Yeah. It's, it illustrates to Australians that they're more connected with us than they realise. Uh, it's, it's also the thing that you'll get little bits um, of your family history and you'll get different versions. And if uh, you're a, the kind of person like Gary or like me and you're sort of like, you document things from year dot. Like you're always... Part of the fun is analysing and interpreting all of this stuff, you yeah, know? Yeah, no, what's what gets you into trouble and it's why my family don't like talking to me. But, I mean, even that's fun sometimes. Uh, yeah. Um, what, what, I, what I just want to say is that it's interesting with Bob because Bob was the family friend of my dad and his two brothers, right? And they remember Bob as an intolerable radical. <laughs> and this is from the early 60s. And yes. there, and there is, and it's genuine. Yes. Like, I mean, I know, like. I understand, absolutely. Yeah, but, it, you know, it's like their pain is real. I'm not saying that it's justified and I'm not saying that they've analysed it. And it's, but, but it it's, came up. It's be- not a vicious um, <sighs> it's thing. A, it's, a, it's a difficult thing, though, because it was actually. Um, oh, All that says is how conservative you're relatives were at the time. I know, but they pride themselves and I was yeah. always brought up with, oh, we don't see colour, racism is bad. I took them at their word, <laughs> you know, um, except when all... I started turning up to like Palestine, uh, free Palestine uh, rallies, um, you know, it wasn't so good. Um, but so what happened, it was I was having dinner and I really like my family, right, they, 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 that, that side of the family, really nice. They're, They're your you know, family. Yeah, well, yeah, and I mean, you know, they tolerate me, which is something. And so I said something, so they're like, what are you, what are you doing? What are you doing? I said, oh, well, you know, I've got a couple of things on the boil. For the last 10 years I've been trying to write a book about Gary Foley but he won't let me. <laughs> That's right, folks. And my aunt said to me, and I love my Aunt Jill, she's gorgeous, but she said, I know Gary Foley. And I said, I don't think you do. I think we would have worked that out. Oh, she said, oh, no, I mean Bob Belair. 
<laughs> like you were the same person. Well, they, they, they tend to – that generation tends to mistake us. They, you know, that's forgivable. Yeah, yeah, sure, sure. I can, I can relate to it. and Okay, yeah, and, and also she's 86, right? Yes, so And she'd recently know. lost her husband, so I mean, you know, things were mixed no, up no, in her brain. No, no, don't make excuses. That's, yeah, and, and things that's were, fair enough and that's cool. You know, things were mixed up in her brain, right? And, uh, you know, people get celebrities keep, mixed up with people. Keep going with the story. No. So we're at dinner, right? And I said, no, no, he wasn't from Mullum. He grew up in Tenerfield and then later on, I think he was about 15 and he went to Nambaka and then I think he got kicked out of school round about then. And we'll get into that in a little minute because I want to wrap up with why you became this fucking historian. Oh, God, have we got another hour? No, but... we haven't got enough hour, another hour. So it was just like, look, again, this is not a, so much about me. It's just a story that yeah. I encountered. And my Uncle Robin was there and well, Uncle Greg lives over the other side of the world, but apparently he was the most hurt and they were like, oh, that's right, it was Belair, it was Bob Belair. Well, he just dropped us like nobody's business and we didn't understand why because we didn't see colour and he starts going on about all this stuff about how he hasn't got any rights and this and that and it was just not true in Mullumbimby and I just thought, fucking hell. Yeah, by then Bob had moved from Mullumbimby. It's the same with me, you know, people who in Nambucca who didn't understand the shit I was saying once I hit Sydney. I mean, once I hit Sydney, I got the shit kicked out of me by a bunch of corrupt thug coppers from the 21 Division and Bob went through pretty much similar experiences to me. Yeah. And, you know, once we got radicalised, we weren't... When we started talking about the, the, the politics we were talking about, uh, a lot of people who'd known us in previous lives, like your family and, and my, my friends from Nambucca, um, just didn't understand, you know. I mean, it was more pronounced in Nambucca because the racism and the segregation was more overt there. I just want to but, tell you, this goes back to the late 50s. This is well before black power, right? This is, what I, this is, what, this is the era I'm talking yeah, about. And they're shitty with him in the 1950s for not being their friend. And I think, I mean, there's something, and it's in something. In the 1950s, he was in the Navy. He wasn't talking any radical shit then. Yeah. And I mean, my dad went off to join the armed forces as well. But. Yes, but what I'm saying I mean, I'm is saying it that wasn't, Bob wasn't radical in I the know, 1950s. I know. I mean, it was the 1950s in northern New South Wales. Of course, he wasn't radical. And he, he would moved, have been shot. He was in the Navy. I know. Just I know. like in the just like in the I'm YMCA. I'm not arguing. All I'm saying is that this is the perception and this is the depth of hurt, right? It's real. I know. It's not right, I, but it's I've, real. I've and seen my, it. I've experienced and it. And my family feel like they've been cheated out of a friendship and branded as racist. I mean, most of my friends when I went to school in Maxwell feel exactly the same way. Yeah. You aren't describing anything that's oh, new to me. Yeah, I, know I know exactly I know, the phenomenon you're you know, talking about. But, you know, the, but it comes back to what I was saying. You're listening too. It's not just a but conversation there, between us. Wait there. What it comes back to is what I said, that we all have interwoven history. Some people realise and understand that. Most Australians don't. And one of the great things that hopefully somebody will take away from this yarn we've been having yeah. is the realisation that, hey, maybe my family's like that and hopefully they'll go and research because the more people, more Australians who, who are willing to find out who they are 
will realise that they are, you know, they're a lot more connected to us than they may think. Mm. And once they realise that, then that helps in terms of empathy instead of sympathy. And also, it hurts, it, yeah. you know. It, and, it, and also it, people coming to terms with their own pain. And their own identity. Like, who, who are you? Like, you know, it's not white guilt or whatever. But it's, it's got it's, fuck all to do with yeah, white it's, guilt. It's just this, you know, like um, history comes um, in, in, in different guises. Um, you know, uh, men and women make history but they do not make it as they please. The nightmare of the past comes to haunt us again and there's so many incidents from the little information I can get from available archives because, you know, like Aboriginal people. I don't need archives. No, I know. I've got 50 years of experience of exactly the sort of shit you're talking about. Yeah, I know, but I mean I know that their ancestors, right, they were involved, you know, Against their will, but we've already in, we've already said that to them. But in doing something called, do you know the no, phrase? No, no. Oh, fuck, I'm not arguing with you. It doesn't. It you don't have to make it that complex. It's simply yeah. I'm just. It's simply a question. Yeah. Go and find out about your own family. That's all. Yeah. Or just yeah. No yeah. need to explain anywhere anywhere beyond that. Yeah, and I'm just. I mean, it's I, as simple as I that. know. But for anybody, right? If you have a conversation like this in your family. And especially if they were from kind of like an inner city. You're already over-explaining again. Yeah, but I think it's really important to you no, who are listening. Important. You know, it's important. No, it's not important for them to know that. It's important for them to think first and foremost, maybe I'll do some research into my own mob. If you've already done it, okay, yeah. you already know where you're going. Yeah, well, I mean, I've That's also, all. like at least my ancestors were never selectors, you know. <laughs> but, yeah, but whether but some they of were them, or not is beside the point. Who gives a shit what we're saying to people g- who are listening? What I don't we're g- saying to people who are listening, all you need to do, find out who your, who your family is because inevitably, whether you know it or not, there are Aboriginal people in your family. Such was the nature of what's gone on. And by that, I'm not advocating that you go out and identify as Aboriginal. I'm just saying oh God, no. that there are there are interconnections in the same way yeah. you've been describing. Yeah, and there's but there's even more, you know, deeper connections. So go out and find yeah. out who you are, folks. Yeah, it'll so, help all so, of us. Yeah, like my dad goes off 1957 to join the armed forces, which is probably about the same time as Bob did, right? Mm-hmm. And they have a memory from back then of this person insulting them mortally by daring to say that Aboriginal people had a different experience of white, life. White fragility was far more pronounced in that era. That's what you're describing to me. I know, I know. And it's, I mean, it's something. So what's surprising about but that? But it's something that is of great interest to me. It's a discussion for another time, I promise, but there is. That's a classic example of white Fragility. Yeah, I mean, you know, they they know whether or not they were coerced into it, and some it's of white that side fragility. of the family, yeah, and some of that side of the family, right? They were sort of like in virtual. Oh, for fuck's sake, in every family. Yeah, I know. They used to clear the land. You know what that means, don't you? In Queensland, like some I don't of, give a fuck what they did. Cleared the land where miners were fucking labourers in Brisbane. They were employed. White fragility were, was abundant yeah. in those days. Yeah. They were employed to shoot blacks in Queensland. Racism was the norm and they in all, those days. They all ended up in the lunatic asylum uh, on... Uh, Not everybody. 
Some of them ended up in government. Some people fucking <laughs> ended up, you know, owning yeah. the media. Some yeah. people ended up fucking, you know. Yeah. Some people ended up police commissioner in New South Wales. Yeah, some of them ended up Keith fucking Murdoch. What a fucking evil prick he was. <laughs> and while we're here, doll, while we're here, yeah. I'm just hoping you might agree with me. Fuck Dame Elizabeth. Been, Fuck I've Dame been, Elizabeth Murdoch. Fuck I've her. I've been agreeing with you most of this podcast and yeah. I, I agree with okay. you So I just want to ask a question. Well. Um, can I ask you how old you were when you moved from Tenterfield to Nambucca? I was um, 12. When we moved to Tenterfield, the reason we moved to Tenterfield, we were following work. My father was a fucking labourer. This is in the era when they were laying the sewerage in country towns in New South Wales. And so my father was a labourer on the sewerage working for a company that was putting on the sewerage in country towns. And they, when I was little, I can't remember. But he was in Maitland, then Gunnedah, mm. and then we moved to Tenerfield. We moved to Tenerfield when I was about four. When we moved to Tenerfield, we lived on the edge of town in Tin Shacks. Then um, after my father had been working there for a little while, we moved into this shack in the middle of this big pipe depot, pipe depot that was there for the laying on the sewage. So there's big giant concrete pipes and things I played in as a kid in the middle of this fucking uh, pipe depot. Then my father became the star of the Tenerfield Tigers rugby league team and Uh. became their captain coach in the long run, took them to all these premierships. And so that enabled us to move into town, into this sort of half a house. Yeah, the one bit of, you know, upward mobility that's traditionally been allowed black people. But there were... Tenerfield was an interesting town because there were about six Aboriginal families in Tenerfield. And it's interesting, these days there's a Facebook page called Tenerfield Memories Mm. that I joined years ago and I've reconnected with everyone I went to primary school in Tenerfield on that Facebook page. And the interesting thing about the Facebook page, I think it was set up by an Aboriginal guy in Tenerfield and every Aboriginal person who's ever commented on that site, and that includes um, Bronwyn Bancroft, whose sister was in my class uh, when I was going to school in Tenerfield. Every Aboriginal person who's commented on that site talks about Tenerfield in the 1950s and 60s as being, well, my experience of Tenerfield is the only, I mean, I didn't experience fucking overt... Racism, apart from when I travelled with my father playing football in southern yeah. Queensland, I'd never experienced fucking overt racism until I got the Nambucca. All of the stories that you've told me um, about that period, because, you know, it's been 10 years now that I've been trying to write a book about you because you're overdue for a biography but you're not going to let anyone do one. Um, but all of the stories that I've recorded from you, 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 your experience of Tenerfield is very positive. You remember being a young uh, boy looking up at the sky and being ignited by the promise of Sputnik, right? <laughs> like um, you remember uh, having your interest in... I remember killing a Kennedy. <laughs> you, 
Yeah, it was you. Uh, my, I will remember exactly where I was in my backyard in Tenderfield. Folks. You, you've got this long-standing interest from that time in astrophysics. You were allowed pretty much to excel at school and you had a library to go to and there was a book, I think you were seven. I was encouraged to, to was... read by an English teacher I had when I was in... Um, I want the name of the book though, Gary, because I've got oh, to remember oh, but it. There's two books that, okay, so that influenced me. This isn't it? book that the turned you on. The teacher's name was George Simpson. He was my English teacher. He encouraged me to fucking read when I was uh, well. Actually, it was um, that's right. He was in primary school because um, he encouraged me to read, and I joined the Tenterfield Public Library. And you knew how to use a library. Well, I fucking learned fast, didn't I? Well, I'd sort of. Learned enough at school to know my way around how to find things. Uh, but the first book I ever read, well, there are two books that I read in the Tenerfield Public Library when I was about 10, 10, 11. I borrowed these books from the Tenerfield Public Library, which was in the, the same room as Sir Henry Parks had made his famous 1819 nine or whenever it was, 1898 uh, Federation speech. Yeah. But anyway, um, the first book was a book called The Silver Sword. Yeah, that's the one. Um, book about history written for kids? Well, it was, a, it was a, more precisely, it was a story that involved, um, I think they were, Pol- I don't know whether they were Polish-Jewish kids, but they were Polish kids in the Holocaust somewhere or other. And that was my first knowledge of that, well, of history, really. And I also read a book called Nimelech, King of the Wilds by Ian Idris. And that's how come my middle son, Bruce, his name is Bruce Nimelech Malcolm X Foley. Great name. And that's why, well, that's why he's my bad son. I'm just Helen Mary. That's the one why, that's why he's fucking just turned 40 and he's still... Living off me, but I think that's because Jeff Kennett fucked up his education, folks. I th- we'll get into that. Um, we'll get into Northlands. Do you want to come around again and do a bit of Northlands? And also, yeah. uh, we got to get to the point uh, where we talk about how relatively late in life you became a historian. I don't want to knacker you well, and that's part of and the, bore you. That's part of the same story I was telling about um, leaving Tenterfield, moving to. Nambucca and going to Maxwell High School where, you know, we had fucking uh, 20%, 25% of the local population were Aboriginal, were Gumbanja people, my mob. And um, in 1964 to 64, 65, there were only four Aboriginal students in the entire fucking high school. Going to save it for the biography. Um, next time we talk, we're going to take up your movement from tel- Tenterfield uh, to Nambucca and the huge difference um, that was made in your life. I also want to talk to you about Gundagai, which is another really interesting example of a town where the dominant, you know, hegemonic racism didn't exist for particular reasons. Well, it was. But we'll talk about that subverted. next time. Can we talk about that next time? Because I don't want to exhaust you. You get the shits with me. No, no, we're going to go on. I've got to go and, in, and have ins- a... And instead of letting me bore you, I'm going to let somebody else bore you. I'm not a historian, not like him, but I do appreciate what history 
the practice of history uh, can can bring us. Um, so here's one of my favourite quotes about it. Is that okay? Absolutely. The tradition of all dead generations weighs like a nightmare on the brains of the living. And just as they seem to be occupied with revolutionising themselves and things, creating something that did not exist before precisely in such epochs of revolutionary crisis, they anxiously conjure up the spirits of the past to their service, borrowing from them names, battle slogans and costumes in order to present the new scene in world history in time-honoured disguise and borrowed language. Karl Marx, folks. Gary and I are working on a uh, little bit of entryism. Uh, we may or may not be doing a bit of Marxism uh, uh, at Easter this year. Who can say? Who can say, but hopefully we will. And if we do, it's going to be um, about Marxism and country music. And that'll be worth the price alone, folks. Before you go, top one, two or three compulsory country songs to understand the beauty of the genre. Go. Um, George Jones. Um, the Cup of Loneliness. Virtually any song that he ever sang. Any duet with Tammy Wynette and George Jones. And... Um, for me, either either drinking with Willie with Willie Nelson and George Jones, and, or it's all going to pot with Merle Haggard and Willie Nelson. I'm going to go Ramblin' Man by Hank, and I love Chris Stapleton. I don't care if he's young, and I think he's fucking great. Of course, your favourite is Shania. I jest, Gary Foley. It's been a pleasure as ever. Uh, there's so much. Um, for you to talk about and tell people, you're never going to let me do your biography, are you? So I guess I'm just going to have to keep doing podcasts with you. You'll end up with a biography in the end. Yeah. Thank you, Helen. It's been a pleasure, as always. Uh, Professor Gary Foley, uh, next time we're starting at Nambucca. No worries. <laughs> You've been listening to Knackers. And a badge.